0: Hello, everyone. It is C.W. Hall. Thanks for joining us here on the Top Docs Radio Show, continuing our series with Medical Association of Georgia. And since the first of the year, there's been much discussion and effort in Washington to set about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. And by golly, they got into it and started doing just that. And I'm sure that many of our listeners out there uh, whether they're practice managers or physicians, are wondering to themselves, "What do we need to do?" Because much was being done to prepare for a variety of requirements from the healthcare laws. And over the past year or two, we've been doing the show with Medical Association of Georgia. We've gotten into value-based reimbursement and different requirements around that, and and much work that is required to actually do that very well. And so you know, here we are. With changes in the law coming about, and I'm sure there's much in the way of questioning, what should we do now? So we brought into the studio with us healthcare expert and attorney Sydney Welch. She is the chair of healthcare innovation at Polsonelli and PC, and we'll be getting into our peers and co- colleagues out there who are listening to the show need to be thinking about as the landscape it continues to evolve around healthcare and legislation so sydney thanks for taking some time to make your way over here to the studio
1: it's great to be here thanks cw
0: so let's get into it i mean so <laughs> with with the the changes that we've been seeing now to the affordable care act and trying to dismantle that does that really do anything as it relates to value based reimbursement as was laid out around you know medicare when medicare is the payer
1: Well, the short answer for that is not for right now, certainly. And there is a lot of change, CW, that you mentioned with everything going on with the Affordable Care Act and the proposals to repeal that and and whatnot. But we still... um, those that are in healthcare must not forget that we have the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, long, fancy way for the acronym that we commonly use called MACRA. And that was enacted in 2015 and then was kind of the skeleton, if you will, for a bunch of regulations that were passed in the fall of 2016 that then implemented changes starting in 2017 that will impact payments in 2019. So, it's the sliding scale of things. And it's bipartisan legislation. So it's thought, the the crystal ball readers and and those that looking at it is that we're not going to have any changes at least immediately to MACRA and its implications for providers and payment adjustments that are upcoming.
0: So then obviously the answer would be continue on if you not fully implemented how well you get down in and know your scores and different things like that around how you're currently being rated for your care and those types of reportables. Continue on with that effort. Don't stop.
1: That's right. Press forward because the time is now. When the final rule was proposed, there was some time leeway given to physicians and other clinicians that are required to report and that they can wait until the last quarter of this year. Our caveat is don't do that because you may wind up using that data to populate what your marks look like, so to speak, or what your grade looks like, but that should be a conscious decision. You need to know when your best performance quarter is going to be if you're going to use that 90-day period.
0: Now, from what I understand, I was reading the the notice about our conversation today, and it was talking about centers for Medicare and Medicaid services say its goal is to tie 90% of all Medicare fee-for-service payments to quality or value by the end of 2018. And from what I understand, there's a couple of pathways that you can get paid, one of which only really applies to a handful of providers out there. Can you talk about those two pathways and how they work?
1: Absolutely. So physicians may remember that this program was really just dis- designed as a replacement to the dreaded SGR adjustments that we had to deal with every year. And as a consequence of MACRA, we've got two paths that physicians and other clinicians can take. One is called the Advanced APMs or the alternative payment models which a short version of that or a simplistic version of that is that's ACOs and it's available for providers that participate in a certain type of ACOs or accountable care organizations okay and then the other path is this MIPS which is a merit-based incentive programs which is really counting and checking the box on four different categories to build a total composite score that then allows for an upward or downward, um, bonus or penalty payment starting in 2019, and it will adjust your fee for service um, payments that are due to you in four uh, percent, up to four percent or minus four percent in 2019.
0: Maybe it's just illustrating my lack of education and on this. I, I'm either or, right? In terms of pathway, if my practice is part of an ACO, then am I going to be in the alternative payment plan, or it, do I have part of my practice? in Different pathways. Am I am I making myself?
1: You're making clear? yourself clear. It's as clear as mud, <laughs> and not to sound too politician or too lawyerly like, but okay. it depends. And the reason that it depends is you may be participating in an accountable care organization, but that accountable care organization may not be one of the kinds that are recognized by CMS, Center for Medicare Medicaid Services, as one that qualifies um, and puts you in that APMs lane. And the key distinguishing factor for getting that credit and having your organization report that way is, is the ACO one that takes on or bears risks? Um, So, financial risk is what they're talking about. And that equates over to the MIPS adjustment by taking on that that risk and being part of that advanced APM, you'll get a set 0.5 adjustment as part of that. So, it's another pathway.
0: I see. And so, Is it a small portion of the ACOs that are out there that are actually taking the risk side of things?
1: It is. Um, Most that entered into the ACO side did so very gingerly, Mm -hmm. not taking on risk to see how things would work um, because most of the successes for ACOs have been on improving quality of care. That's what physicians do very well. Um, the taking on risk and managing that financial risk has been harder for everybody to meet, in part because of the metrics that attach to that. This is a new ballgame for everybody. Everybody's working through, how A, A, what the metrics are, and then, B, how do you go about restructuring to achieve those because it really is a different way of practicing, or it can be.
0: Interesting. So you're saying that for those organizations that began to shoulder some of the risk, it was proving to be difficult when we look back over the previous year about what it cost me per patient, to deliver the care we delivered. Is that what we're saying? That's
1: right. That's right. And so, as, as you all will remember, many of those were demonstration projects that CMS was doing to test how they did. And so, the data coming out that with those were that people would do well on quality, not so well on cost. And so, a lot of them dropped out or didn't continue. But for most, um, that APMs is, are, are going to be not the advanced APMs, I unless see. you're with a sophisticated organization that's made that investment.
0: Is that difficulty hitting those numbers a factor of we didn't estimate as well as we needed to the cost for those patients, or it took us a little while to begin to change the way we practice so that our costs are contained?
1: It's all those things. Um, The cost problem, as we know, is really the problem of healthcare today. How do you manage that? And it's been something that's been a real struggle for everybody to do. And you look at the new delivery models, whether it's on the APM side of things or if it's on MIPS, and the juxtaposition is we have a fee-for-service or a volume program, and we're combining it with a value program. So on the MIPS side, it's a way to transition providers into a value-based model. And then on the ACOs, it's more of a quick ramp-up into that pure value-based model.
0: Healthcare attorney and expert on regulations around healthcare and technology, Sydney Welch, with us from Polsonelli, looking at MACRA and what the recent changes in the healthcare law mean for these types of programs. And clearly, as Sydney has been sharing with us here in the first few minutes, that for all practical purposes, these programs are more or less unchanged so far. And and right now, we need to proceed. With the assumption that they're going to be in place. I mean, I, I can't see them backing these programs up. I, I would imagine that the early returns are showing, Sydney, that people are getting better outcomes when we're ad- adjusting with outcomes as part of our measure. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Not just, I did a procedure.
1: That's right. I mean, that's where we're certainly head. That's the theory. And so we're short on data to prove that theory. And we're short on measures right now that have a lot of provider input. We're working on making that transition. So it's a little bit like throwing the spaghetti to the wall and see what sticks. (laughs) And so when you look at the MIPS program, it's comprised of four different categories that the upward or downward adjustment will be based off of. Those are quality, cost, improving care, and advancing care initiatives, And so the quality for those who have been participating in PQRS, the Physician Quality Reporting System of the past, they're very similar measures to that, but those measures will be adjusted every year in the fall. So we will continue to see refinement for that process as we move forward. Um, CMS has granted providers a little bit of a break because cost is not going to be part of that total composite score in year one. So they'll gradually add in that measure for years two and forward. The improvement activities is a new category that measures certain things related to care improvement as fundamental as having appointment reminders and things that many providers are already doing. And then the last category of the advancing care information is the uh, category formerly known as meaningful use, the dreaded meaningful use for many. Um, And we know that there's a lot of argument about deadlines and things associated with that, but that's what translates over so arguably um, just one new category for physicians in this advancing care.
0: Well, when it comes to preparing your your practice and how you go about things for being compliant with the requirements of reporting and the way care is delivered and monitored through these programs, I mean, do you have some advice on how to get started? Where, where, where do you begin to place your focus to make sure things are in line with these types of reporting requirements and and outcome measures, et cetera?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great first step question. And I think for many, that first step question is going to be answered by education. They need to educate themselves as to what the program is all about and what it entails. So a simple couple hours of reading and brushing up, there's plenty of resource materials through Medical Association of Georgia, American Medical Association, and others as to what that really what the programs mean for them. And then the second threshold question for many providers I think are going to be, are they even required to be part of the MIPS program, or are they exempt. And so, a lot of the controversy with the proposed rule for macros that originally came out was that it applied to many um, small physician practices. And so, you read headlines that said death knell for small physician practices, macro, <laughs> right? And so, when the 4,000 comments that came in between the proposed and the final rule published, you could see an adjustment of CMS's perspective in the final rule that was published. And so, part of that was for a carve-out for certain providers. So M- MIPS and Macro will apply to a number of different clinicians, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, and certified nurse practitioners. But they have to bill Medicare Part B more than 30,000 in a particular year, so many concierge practices and others may be excluded from that formula, and they have to see more than 100 Medicare patients in a particular year. Hmm. And if you pass that, then your participation is mandatory, but as you can see from those measures, it may carve out many of those small physician practices. And then where do you go from there? So once you've made, I'm, I'm in this game, um, an involuntary participant, but nonetheless, yeah. I've made the decision to accept Medicare. What do you do when you go forward there? And the answer to that is I think you start by looking to see where your performance is is going to measure up in these different categories. And the blessing of the um, revised rule, the final rule when it came out, was it allowed for this pick-your-pace mentality. You don't have to report for all of 2017, which gave physicians and others breathing room to get ready. um, So they can take the measures that are coming out of just that 90-day at the end of the quarter period if they want to. And then they have only a small number of measures. It's not the whole universe of measures that they have to report from not to to maintain their status quo and not get any adjustment upward or downward. So those are good news as well. But you can mention, you know, there's a CMS has really tried to provide a lot of educational resources and materials for physicians, Mm -hmm. including a lookup resource. So if you go to the QPP program website for CMS, you can type in your NPI or your national provider identifier and find out if you're exempt from macro and MIPS participation. So that's a great place Mm -hmm. to start.
0: When it comes to submitting these reports that are going to be required as we go forward, is it something that is fairly simple to comply with through the use of EMRs? I mean, are they designed now well enough that I can get the data that those reports are wanting me to to give them?
1: You would think. (laughs) But um, as many who have dealt with electronic health records know that they are not, they're far from perfect. And so a lot of companies are making those adjustments by virtue of the fact that they've been there sitting there providing the medical record keeping function. Now the question is, can they translate that over to pulling out the data and information that providers need to report? So your contracts with your vendors will be very important to look to see what their capabilities are, not just what they say they can do in a sales pitch, but what they're willing to stand behind contractually and say that they will agree that they will provide for you. The good news is that a lot of the reporting mechanisms, particularly on the quality side um, and then also on the advancing care information side, you can you, there are a number of different ways to come at it in terms of reporting. So you could use your vendor to do the reporting and the pull, but you could also participate in a qualified registry. So you may be part of a specialty society that has one of those. And so, you could use that to do that. Some use claims reporting as well, so that the num- the information can be extracted from the claims. So, that will be very useful because there are a number of different measures. So, providers will need to look at what their capabilities and resources are, what they're already participating, and how best to pull that data and information.
0: So, to submit the, the reporting requirements, office offices able to accomplish this logistically with... Either an office manager or someone like that from the administrative team, or is this something the the clinicians themselves need to be doing? How do how do you execute this piece?
1: Well, I think a lot of it will fall on the office manager um, to be having you know kind of running the. Uh, The ball, so to speak, to to make that happen. Um, And so, yes, they can do that themselves. um, And that can be a delegated duty and responsibility. And obviously, with that's going to come education and training and a plan of action. There are things like, for example, on the meaningful use and then the, the improvement activities and the advancing care information. Both of those mechanisms, one of the ways to sign off on that to get the point credits are through an attestation. Um, and so that will be physician-based. So the physician owner of the practice will have to sign off on those attestations. It won't be something that the office manager will be doing. So that will be a difference, and the physicians need to be acutely aware because they're signing off on something that entitles them to payment. And therefore, they're representing that they met those meaningful use standards, etc. So the go- government can come and claw back that money if they didn't really have what they said. So be careful what you're signing.
0: Now, risk adjustment, is, isn't is that part of the process that here in, in documenting care that you're delivering in patient populations like what would be affected by these programs?
1: We're not there yet on the MIPS side, so the short answer to that is no. The um, quality performance measures are much more fundamental um, and really not looking at bearing risk, and that's why the MIPS aspect of the two programs, the, the choice of which road you take, is more favorable to many physicians because it's easier to achieve without that risk being taken.
0: Now, as far as the deadlines that are involved for you know, either upcoming reporting or things being in place with regards to like EMR requirements and so forth. Can you talk about some of the important deadlines people need to make sure they've got on their calendars?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they need to be... Gathering the information and be in a position, the the door for that data that will u- be used to populate the payment adjustments will be twelve thirty one seventeen, and then they'll have till March of twenty eighteen to submit those reports and get that information in, or to have that information ferried from CMS um, through the other different reporting mechanisms. So those are really the critical hallmarks.
0: Now, are they doing? Is this a A paper document? Is this a digital document? How is is that being transacted? It
1: it depends. Um, It depends on the provider's resources and the decision-making that the provider chooses to make. So a lot of it is naturally being encouraged to be digital. So when you see information that's coming out of the EHR and they've made that decision to use that vehicle to report, that will be digital. Um, The cost will be pulled from the claims. So that will be all for everybody, electronic filing. So the answer is much more heavily weighted to that.
0: When it comes to making sure that my practice is in line with the requirements around the the macro uh, changes, it, what do you think is a probably a reasonable expectation of resources financially that I need to kind of set aside or expect to invest in this process?
1: Well, that was another big bone of contention um, when the initial proposed rule came out because the Central Budget Office has to score the legislation, the regulations as to cost that are associated with that. And so the estimates were tens of thousands of dollars. So that was the real concern, as you can imagine, for these really small practices. Mm -hmm. And so thus the adjustment and the carve-outs for certain small clinicians that would meet those eligible thresholds. I think you're still talking about – um, TENS, a multiplier, but not as significant as they were before. So somewhere in the range of twenty to forty thousand dollars, probably per provider. Now mm-hmm. the interesting thing is as well is that for these measures on the MIP side of things, um, providers have a decision to make whether they're going to report per individual, or are they going to report under group reporting mechanisms? And once you make that decision, it's across the board. So you can't be individual for the quality (laughs) and group for the advancing care. So it's all, you know, you're one way or another um, once you've decided that label. So that's another step that groups will be looking at or groups situated within a health system, for example, will be looking at what are the economies of scale and what do the performance look like overall?
0: So will there be some measure of logic when you're standing there it's not going to feel like flipping a coin as far as which way you go i mean what are you what are you weighing your choice up- upon
1: you really are running your numbers both ways a consideration for the individual physicians if they're in a larger group practice or if they're part of a health system will be how do my numbers look versus everybody else's uh-huh. when you run the aggregate. And then what does my employment agreement say with the group or with the health system as to how I will be compensated? Because they could, to a degree, wind up subsidizing, if you will, the poor performance of others in their mm-hmm. group. And those are conversations that will be happening.
0: How does the notion of the employed physician, if you will, I'm think of some hospital and then many hospitals will have the XYZ Hospital Medical Group, does that same – how am I affected if I'm one of those either physicians or physician extenders that you spoke of in a employed practice versus freestanding?
1: Well, they're going to be impacted because it's going to be based on what their employment agreement says. So if there's flexibility in terms of adjustment of their compensation from year to year on a, or on a periodic basis – or if there are provisions that allow for adjustment based off of changes in the law, etc., they can expect to see a shift in the compensation formulas. Um, Right now, compensation formulas that are based off of work RVUs, work relative value units are very common to see. In other words, you get rewarded for the more you work. A very fee-for-service mentality is commonplace in many Mm -hmm. of those agreements. But now we're seeing that we're changing how you're getting rewarded or penalized under the MIPS program. And so consequently, we'll expect to see and are seeing changes in those compensation formulas being offered to physicians.
0: So we're still technically right now on a fee-for-service basis. It's just parts of it are changing.
1: That's that's right. Again, it's intended to be a kinder, gentler, softer landing to value-based payments.
0: And when, going back to our conversation about the ACO, when do you find that it's advantageous or not to, to look at linking into those organizations? Because, because from what I understand, if, the, if, if an organization like that is doing a good job, then it can be very profitable for the groups that do participate in a successful ACO that is saving money.
1: If they are. Right. And that's a key distinction. Um, and there are certainly those that are doing very well. But physicians that are making a decision about do I participate or not, you know, don't make the mistake of hopping on the runaway train, leaving the station at the last minute, thinking you have to join an ACO because you don't have to join an ACO. You should only be joining an ACO that has the positive performance. And you know how that positive performance will be then in turn distributed with within the ACO to you as a physician participant. Because again, you, within that group of the ACO unit, you, you will be compensated and to a certain degree, you'll be subsidizing the performance of others. So if it's doing well as a whole, you may recognize some of that upside. If it's not doing well, how will you be impacted and what ability do you have to influence that change?
0: Got some final thoughts before I let you get back to the office? I've already kept you here for half an hour
1: Well I appreciate that it's been fun it's you know it's a headache to sort through. I think the good good news is it's manageable if you take it in bite-sized chunks. If you put your head in the sand and start hoping it will go away <laughs> um, that would be an ill-informed way to proceed um, but you, you know you've got what are we in May now you've got seven more months. Uh, to start chewing away at this. And you've got relatively small measures to meet this year. So start your homework now.
0: You got some contact information if folks want to link up with you and your team?
1: Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. So my email address is S, is in Sam, Welch, like the grape juice, at Polsonelli, which is the trickier, P-O-L. S-I-N-E-L-L-I.com. My telephone number is 404-253-6047. Welcome. Any help we can provide, and MAG's a great resource, as is the CMS website, qpp.com.
0: On the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives. You can subscribe to us, That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. We hope you turn around and click share on this. Put it out on LinkedIn. That's a great place for it. Share it on Facebook, Um, When you're checking out the podcast, because this information very well could be something that's very helpful to someone that means something to you. So we'll say thank you very much for everyone that does turn around and help us get the word out about this. And Sydney, I really appreciate you joining us. It's always a great conversation. You share some excellent information. I'm pleased to help put it out.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, CW.
0: Everybody at Medical Association of Georgia, thanks so much for helping to make Top Docs Radio show possible. And to the folks that made us a part of their day today, we appreciate you very much. We'll see you next time.